You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution? Some of you aren't paying attention. How you doing, Revolution? All right, that's what I'm talking about. Wake that baby up in the back. That's what I was trying to get you to do so Chris couldn't sit in here with us anymore because I don't like him. I love Chris. I love Chris to death. Um, Yeah. Um, Okay, so I see um, a couple people that maybe we haven't seen in a while. I'm very glad that you're here. I see a couple of new faces. I'm glad you guys are here too um, because we're a small enough church that I can actually point at you. And I hope that doesn't weird you out. I love you guys. Anyway, I did that without even thinking. So yeah, that was on the fly. Uh, anyway, uh, so we're going through Acts this summer, if you didn't know. Uh, we're going through Acts this summer. We'll actually be finishing that pretty soon here in the next few weeks. Um, and we start a new series that I'm pretty excited about called Bible Stories. Yeah, think like, consider this if you will. A lot of the Bible stories that we know, we weren't taught properly, come to find out. Um, yeah, like Samson, if you've been in the men's Bible study, oh my gosh, there are so many things that they didn't tell you that I won't go into right now because we don't have time. It's just horrible sin. Just all the time. And all you knew is like Samson was real strong and like killed some people. And like that's really all you heard about in Sunday school. You didn't hear about everything else. Uh, anyway, but what we're doing this evening is we're continuing on in, in Acts. Um, but we will be looking at Samson at some point in this next series. It's going to be a good time. Um, but the series that we're in right now is called The People of God. And, we'll be, and, and, and what we're doing is we're looking at the early church and how they thought and how they lived and the things that they did. And what we've been trying to do all summer long, and we're going to keep doing for a few more weeks, is we're trying to see the mission and mentality that God's people, right, the people of God, see how clever that was, that God's people, the church, right, capital C, the worldwide church, God's people, what the mission and mentality of the church is supposed to be, Right? Um, we're trying to find out, okay, how did they think? How did they live? What did they do? What did they hold to? And how much do we need, like how much can we modify our lives to come in step with those kinds of things? Because they have a lot of good godly examples to show us. Um, but tonight, what we're going to do specifically um, with the passage we're in in Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Uh, just so you know, if you're new, there are Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one with you. Um, or it's going to be up here on the projector as well. Uh, But tonight in Acts 15, what we're going to look at um, is we're going to see what the church believed, right? It's not so much, again, it's like what what we're looking at this evening is not so much what did the church do and what do we need to do as well is actually the beauty of this message, is you're not actually required to do very much at all, um, if anything. But we want to see what did the church believe, specifically, what did the early church believe about how someone is saved, Right? What verdict did the early church come to to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Right, and, and listen to me. Like, like th- this, is, this is my favorite thing in the world to preach on. Like, I, I, I've, I've been geeked to preach this sermon to you guys because it's, it's, the, it's the gospel. Like, I know we preach the gospel week in and week out, but like, what, what we're going to talk about tonight is just the gospel. The gospel opposed to a false religion that masquerades itself as Christianity. This is huge. 
Like, I hope you guys are excited about this because, like, this is awesome. Like, I, if you, I guess it's not, I'm not putting this on to try to make something, like, get you guys interested. Like, this is awesome. So here's the concept that I'm hoping that you guys are going to walk away with this evening because I've been a Christian for a while. I've known these truths. I've studied this stuff, but it gripped me in a way this week that it's not gripped me in a long time. And this is a grace of God given to us to hear his gospel proclaimed. But here's the concept that I, I, I want um, to, for, you, for you to take home, and it's this. The people of God rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We rest in the finished work of Christ. And we reject and oppose any teaching or group that says that we must contribute anything to our salvation whatsoever. We believe that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone. And as God's people, we are finished with trying to make ourselves right with God in any way. We trust in Christ's work, not our own. We don't actually do anything to be saved. This is going to be awesome. Well, let's uh, go ahead and turn to Acts 15. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. I'll read those to you. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria... Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, and this is what they taught them. Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. And at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, help me to rightly divide your word and preach the gospel. God, I pray that anyone here who's who's bound in a chain of bound by chains of legalism, whether they were formally taught it growing up, or, or whether this thought that they have to do something to merit their salvation has entered their mind. However, it is, God, I pray you would break that and free them. You know that we, even as believers, Father, 
are prone to fall into a state where we think we're only accepted by you if we're doing really well. God, I pray that that would just be cast so far from us that we don't even remember those kinds of thoughts. And God, if there's any unbelievers here, I pray that the gospel of grace through faith in Christ would become real to them and you would open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel so they could see and believe and be saved. Holy Spirit, please awaken our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so to give a little recap, I'm king of the recaps, right? I love to recap what I read because if you're like me, I don't do well whenever people read to me, uh, especially in public settings. But to recap what we just read in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. Now that's kind of uh, important here. Uh, It's in southern Galatia, right? Um, Fun fact, Paul, actually because of these teachers that came in from Judea to Antioch, a lot of scholars will argue that's why Paul wrote Galatians. That these two events, like that, that book and this event are directly related. Um, pretty interesting. But in Antioch, what's good to know is there are lots of Jewish and Gentile Christians there. Right? In a lot of different cities you would go to, is either one or the other. But here it's a pretty solid mix of both. Um, and then some men from Judea come and, and say this, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Um, which we're going to talk about that in a minute because that sounds kind of funny to us if you don't know much about what the Bible teaches about circumcision. Um, and then Paul and Barnabas, they begin to argue and debate against the false teachers. Right? The Greek says they make no small dispute, right? which is another way of, it's just a negative way of saying they had a huge fight over this. Right? Paul and Barnabas were having none of that bull. Right? Like they they like lost it, argued with them, debated with them. I can imagine from Paul's kind of attitude that I get from the scriptures, like he's probably red-faced during all this, which is kind of makes me feel better because I get really upset about this kind of stuff too. Um, but they argue and debate just with passion about this. And then as a result of that, the church in Antioch says, okay, um, Paul and Barnabas and some of our people, we want you guys to go to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles and elders there and settle this, Right? Do we need to be circumcised to be saved or do we not? Like, we need this answered really badly. And the reason why they sent them to Jerusalem, there's two reasons. One, the false teachers were from Judea. Jerusalem is the hub of Judea, big city. Um, and not only that, but um, some church historians will tell you that um, the church in Jerusalem was like the mother church, right? Because that's where the Christians started out, was in Jerusalem. Um, so, the, again, there's two reasons that they wanted the council to meet there. And actually, next week, we're going to look at the council. Um, But the council meets, and they discuss this issue, and then at the end of it, Peter stands up, and he makes a speech, and he reminds them of how God saved Cornelius. I know he didn't use Cornelius' name, but he said, if you you remember Acts 10, we talked about it a few weeks back, Um, Peter goes and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, because God had told him, hey, go to the Gentiles, don't call them unclean anymore. Right? I want you to associate with these Gentiles. I want you to tell them the gospel so they can repent and believe. And he recounts this story, essentially, bare basic facts, that Cornelius wasn't a Jew. He had never been circumcised. And God gave Cornelius and his whole household the Holy Spirit the moment they believed. God cleansed their hearts through faith the moment they believed. No Old Testament law, obedience required. They received the Holy Spirit before they were even baptized. Right? So clearly, Peter makes the argument, salvation comes by faith. And faith alone. So then the council rules this, among some other things we'll look at next week. The council rules that salvation is solely by grace. Which is, if you're, not, if you're kind of new to church language, I understand we speak Christianese. Um, grace just means unmerited favor. So the council rules that salvation is solely by the unmerited favor 
of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the official ruling of the church. Right? But here's, here's the thing that I want us to see. Right? And I like to post questions because it helps me think. <laughs> what, what, were these men, what, what were these men from Judea really teaching? Right? What were they teaching? Because um, we have to grasp this. Like I said, we were going to go back to circumcision. They were teaching that circumcision according to the law of Moses, which is just another way of referring back to the Old Testament, circumcision according to the law of Moses is necessary for salvation. That's what these teachers are teaching. Um, these false teachers. right? Or if I use the word, just so you know, these men from Judea, I'm, I'm liable to use the word legalists, Judaizers, or false teachers. But that, yeah, like we're, we're bringing out the big guns for this, right? The, that's who I'm referring to are these teachers from Judea. And they were teaching circumcision is necessary for salvation. Now, circumcision is, is this. We're not going into the science of it. Biblical, <laughs> biblical circumcision um, is this Old Testament. Yeah, I'll let you Google that on your own. Um, <laughs> don't. don't, yeah, not, not good. Um, but it's this Old Testament ritual given by God to symbolize the cutting away of sin. Yeah, so there's a little nugget of information for you if you didn't know that. It's to symbolize the cutting away of sin, and it's the mark of God's people, right? It's the symbolic cutting away of sin, and you could not be counted as part of God's people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant unless you were circumcised under the Old Covenant law, right? So this is really important to understand that. This is the mark of God's people. You can't be part of God's people unless you're circumcised. So what these false teachers were saying to these Gentile Christians were, you are not part of God's people, right? Or we could rephrase that. You are not saved unless you do this ritual. Even if your faith is in Jesus Christ and what He has done on your behalf, it is worthless unless you do this ritual as well as have faith. And that sentence makes me like feel dirty, just throwing that out there. Right? They're saying you have all the faith you want. It's worthless if you don't do this ritual. So let's try to take this a little bit deeper, though. right? Um, this is bigger. This is much bigger than just some false teachers trying to impose a Jewish ceremony on Gentiles or non-Jews. Right? This is a lot bigger than just trying to impose a ceremony or ritual. Um, what this false teaching really says is that faith alone in Christ alone is not enough to be saved from hell. That's the problem. They say, you, you will not be saved by faith. It's a combination of stuff. Faith is not enough to reconcile you to God, is what they're saying. The faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ is good, but it's not good enough. You must also do something in addition to believing on Christ. Their teaching faith must be supplemented by works in order to save you. And just these men, these men were teaching that it is a mix, right? A mix of faith and man's obedience to God that saves a sinner. That's what they're teaching. That it's a mixture of faith and good works that saves. Right? So but here, here's the problem with that. Um, we're going to get into a bunch of problems with that. Um, at the end of the day then, this is really what it, what it comes down to. Obedience to God's law is the real determining factor in your salvation. It's, it's, it's not so much about faith, about, or rather than what you do, according to what these guys are teaching. So really then, salvation rests on you and your works at the end of the day, and not Christ's. Christ's are very important. You need those too. But at the end of the day, the responsibility falls on your shoulders 
for whether or not you'll be saved because you must have certain good works. You must have this ritual. That's what they were teaching. That it's a mix of faith in Christ and man's obedience that saves a sinner. Um, I don't get to say this very often from the pulpit. Um, That is heresy. That is heresy. If you don't know what that word means, that's false teaching that leads someone to hell. False teaching that leads to damnation. That's what heresy is. You cannot be saved if you believe that. That's what we mean whenever we say heresy. So to believe that it's a mixture of faith and man's obedience that saves, you will go to hell if you believe that. There's, there's no getting around that. It goes against everything that the Bible says. But here's the thing about heresies. Right? Even though the church denounced it in the first century, we've denounced dozens, hundreds, maybe. I'm not that great with church history, but I know dozens at least of real bad heresies over like the last 2,000 years. Right? We've denounced a bunch of those. Um, but heresies don't usually go away. That's what's interesting. They don't go away. They morph, right? Like they evolve. They change a little bit. They don't quite look the same. But at the core, they are the same thing. It's the same kind of teaching at the core. And I I would argue this. Heresies morph because the devil is cunning, right? He's really smart. He's like, all right, they wouldn't take it from that angle, so let's like ball it up and try to sneak it in over here, right? And He's smart. I'll give him that. He's wicked, but he's smart. Um, So then here's here's the thing then. What, What does this look like today? What does this heresy, that it's a mixture of faith and man's obedience that saves a sinner? Because right? the old heresy was you have to be circumcised to be saved. What does this look like today? Well, some of them are really easy to spot. Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism being probably the easiest one to spot, um, as far as I can tell. Right? And, and what I mean by that, and I'm not saying blanket statement that necessarily every single Roman Catholic is going to hell. I think that there are some Catholics that are going to hell that are just not very good Catholics. Um, but like Roman Catholicism is really easy to spot for this because they say um, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. You have to go through this endless cycle of confession and penance and taking uh, communion and all of these things as means of grace to keep that grace that God imparted into you alive and that you can kill the grace that God gave, it, gave you through sinning. So it's this endless cycle of works that you have to continue to do or you'll not be saved. Catholicism is pretty easy to spot that in because that's actually in their doctrinal statements, right? It's in their councils. Um, they actually, in the Council of Trent back in the 1500s, said if anyone believes that salvation comes by faith alone, they're cut off from Christ and going to hell. That's actually a statement that the Catholic Church made uh, in the 1500s, and they've never repealed it, right? So that's really easy to spot. Uh, another one, it gets a little bit harder whenever you get into Protestant groups, right? But this is still around for certain today. Um, we can see in, in, in groups like the Church of Christ denomination, where they say, unless you are baptized, you're not going to be saved. That you can have all the faith in the world, but like, let's say you're heading on the way to the church to get baptized, you get hit by a car, eh, you're going to hell, right? It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter to, to, a very, to, to, to a lot of people that are part of the Church of Christ, at least. There are certain Pentecostal groups that say you're not saved unless you're baptized with a certain formula, Right? It's not just that you have to be baptized. You've got to be baptized in this certain way. Um, so some of it's really easy to spot. You can find this stuff in like people's doctrinal statements or church councils that they've held within their denomination, stuff like that. Some of it's really easy to spot, like that. Um, another kind of this heresy, though, is way harder to spot. And it's harder to spot because it's more deceptive. <laughs> um, because every truly destructive false teaching has part of the truth in it, right? Like there's this heresy called Arianism that denies that Jesus Christ is God, 
But they say that he was created by God the Father. Why is that? Because part of the truth is Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. Right? Do you see what I'm saying there? Every really bad heresy that's very effective has a part of truth in it. Right? But here's the heresy today that's hard to spot. And it's this. Um, It's this kind of teaching about salvation. That says, faith plus obtaining a certain standard of moral perfection. That is, that is the number one false teaching in the church today, I would argue. At least in the Protestant church. The salvation is faith plus obtain a certain standard of moral perfection. Many people teach this today. Many people teach this um, in our county. Oh my gosh. I grew up with this. I've talked to a lot of you. Most of us, actually, I would, I would wager that. Most of us grew up with this kind of teaching. That it's, that it's this. Salvation is this. You have to believe in Jesus you have to put your trust in Christ. That's awesome. Plus, you've got to be really, really good. You have to be really good or you won't be saved. I'm not denying good works. We're going to get into that in a minute. But it's faith plus be really good or you won't be saved. It's never faith alone. It's faith plus a certain standard. That's called legalism. Legalism, literally, you will be saved by your obeying the law. That your obedience to God factors into your salvation. That's the majority teaching, at least in our area, in the, in the vast majority of churches. In some of the largest churches in our area, that is the teaching. But I'll say this, the part of truth that, that's in that false teaching is this. True faith results in spiritual growth and in obedience to God's moral law and standards. That's the piece of truth that's in this false teaching. Right? True faith, true saving faith results in obedience to God, that we will grow in holiness, we'll grow to be more like Christ. But what the, what the false teaching that we hear a lot today, what, what it's doing is it's confusing the evidence of salvation with the cause of salvation. Right? Uh, I heard a Baptist preacher, his name's Stephen Lawson, or as we like to call him at Revolution, Stone Cold Steve Lawson. Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. That's Dustin Cooley, I'll give him all that credit. Um, but yeah, he, he said this about confusing the evidence of salvation, which is obedience to God, with the cause of salvation, which is faith. Whenever he talks about that, he says they're confusing the root with the fruit. Again, leave it to Baptists to come up with little lame things that rhyme, but they're like, they get stuck in your head forever, right? So he's saying faith is the root, it's the cause of our salvation, our obedience to God is what naturally comes out of that. But they're, and they're confusing those two things with this heresy, right? Um... Again, obedience to God will truly happen if we have faith, but our salvation does not hinge on our moral performance. Thank God. Right? And if you're okay with that, you really need to go back and read the Bible and see, like, do you really line up 100% with what the Bible teaches at all times? Because God says, sin one time, you deserve to go to hell. Right? But at the same time, I feel like anytime I preach messages like this on faith alone, I have to say this. Someone who professes faith in Jesus but cares nothing for God's commands prove that they don't have faith. You don't believe me? Read James. Right, James is the most moral book in the New Testament. And he straight up says, it, he says, faith without works is dead. Which doesn't mean that you must have faith and works for salvation, but he's saying faith without works that backs up that profession of faith is really a dead faith that has no power to save. That's what James argues in that book. But anyway, this legalism that says, have faith plus be obedient for salvation. It's not just that they get it confused and it can be... Um, 
acceptable because it's just confusion of cause versus evidence. That, that's not the case. What that heresy does, this legalism, what it teaches is, 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 is it's really denying the sufficiency of Jesus. It's denying the sufficiency of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection. That's the real problem with it. Legalism says that we have to add our obedience to the perfect work of Christ. Now think about that for a second. The, the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ was sinless in life, morally perfect. That in his death, he perfectly and completely satisfied the wrath of God for our sin in our place as a substitute. And then he was raised to new life as proof of our hope. That's what the Bible teaches. To sum that up quickly, his work to save us was perfect. It was complete. Again, I don't think Jesus ever lied. I don't know about you guys. But whenever he's on the cross, he says, Tedeleste. This is the word you see at the end of a receipt that means it, the, the transaction is over. Paid in full. I have bought the salvation of all who would ever come to faith in me. And God has been paid the justice that he requires. I don't think he was lying whenever he said that. He says, it is done. It is perfect. It is complete. Whenever he cried that from the cross. But legalism teaches that we must add to Jesus' work. That is ludicrous. But just think about this. Just go with me on, on this. How can we add to the perfect work of Christ? By our imperfect obedience? <laughs> right? By like our, we're going to add our moral failure to Jesus' perfection, and that's going to save us somehow. Or even if we, like, on the surface obey God's commands, it's not always done with the right heart, right? So it's like, yeah, like, I didn't look at pornography today, but, like, I lusted after six people whenever they walked by. Like, you're going to bring that to God and say, yeah, I'm going to couple this with Jesus' perfect life, and that should get me some salvation up in here, right? Like, how does that make any sense? That makes no sense because you can't add to perfection. That's the point of perfection. It needs nothing. It is sufficient. And it's not just sufficient in this, uh, that'll do, I guess, kind of an idea. But perfection is abundantly effective. That's what it means to be perfect. Jesus did enough to save us. He did more than enough. He was perfect. We do nothing to add to or merit our salvation whatsoever. Because it was his life, death, and resurrection was perfect for us. But I really like how Peter makes his argument against legalism. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 again. He stands up in front of the council and he says, Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Slaying this out there. We're going to look at some other texts here in a minute that, that say that essentially the same thing. But Peter, what he just did is he gives a solid argument of how salvation happens. Like legitimately. Like, like um, notwithstanding the sovereignty of God in our salvation, right? But as far as like what he could see whenever he saw Cornelius and his household convert that we talked about earlier. This is how he lines out salvation in Peter's argument. Because this is how he's arguing in front of the council. He says, one, God chose me to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He said, and they heard it. 
Step one, they heard the gospel. They heard the message that Jesus Christ has been crucified in their place for their sin and raised from the dead as proof that their sin has been paid for. And if they repent and trust in him, they'll be saved. They heard that message. They heard the gospel. Then they believed it. (laughs) And then thirdly, God cleansed their hearts by faith. I learned something about the word by this week. That word means agency. That's one of the ways that we use the word by. Like if you do something by force, well, how did you do it? I used force. That was the agency of me getting something done. So God cleansed their hearts through the agency of faith, right? So Peter's making this argument before them. They heard the gospel, they believed it, and because of their faith, God cleansed their hearts. So like, again, I just want to kind of hash through this. All right, I'm not having a transition into the, what, what his argument was, but this was cool. So he says in verse 8, God knows people's hearts. Right? And not in like the hippie way, right? Like, oh, he blessed their heart. Like, he knows that they mean well, even though they're sinning. No, that's not like what that means. Right? It's actually cool. The Greek literally means he is the heart knower. I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, but verse 8 says that he knows people's hearts, which means he sees if they truly believe or not. He sees if they truly have faith or not. And then he says, God sees that these Gentiles truly believed. So he cleanses their hearts. And how did he confirm this? He confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, which according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, the Holy Spirit is a down payment given to believers that we will receive the inheritance that God purchased for us through Jesus, which is our salvation. He's saying they believed, God cleansed their hearts, gave them the Holy Spirit. Boom, there's your evidence. God accepted them, they will receive salvation on the basis of faith. He's saying these Gentiles who have never obeyed the Old Testament law, have never been baptized, they believed the gospel and had their hearts cleansed. Which means there's no more guilt for sin. The record of their debt, according to Paul in Colossians, has been nailed to the cross and taken away from them. Right? And that's what he's saying, that God instantaneously counted them as righteous the moment they believed. They were absolved from all guilt. They were saved on the basis of faith alone because they had done nothing else. They had just believed. So Peter explains in that little, you didn't know there was so much in just a couple of verses there, did you? It's pretty awesome to get to tear that apart whenever I was studying. Right? But Peter though, then is explaining that the means of obtaining and keeping salvation is solely by faith, not works. But Peter isn't the only one that says that. Right? So we're just going to run through real quick four passages. This is great. John 3.16, everyone knows this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 1.17, the good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight or saves us. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life or the just shall live by faith. Romans 3.22 says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Galatians 2.16, this is great. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. He's trying to push something home in that verse if you didn't tell, if you didn't tell that. Faith, not by obeying the law. And there are like legitimately, like I could be here 
for the rest of the evening reading you passages that talk about salvation by faith alone, whether it's explicit or implicit. We could do this for the rest of the evening. And I could do that with you if you would like to come see me after the service. This is beautiful truth. But the question is this. If faith, then, is the one condition that God grants salvation to sinners. Because people say, you know, God loves you unconditionally. I can't say that with biblical faithfulness. There is, there is a condition. The Bible actually says God hates sinners. But then the Bible also says that God, it's in the Psalms, promise. Read your Psalms. I believe this is within the first 10 or 15 Psalms. I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. It says God hates the wicked. He is upset with them. He is furious with them every day. But then the Bible also says that God shows his love for sinners and that he gave Christ for us. So I'll let you work that out and hold that intention. We can talk about that another day. But don't believe that the love of God is unconditional. There is one condition, the condition of faith. Which again, thank God, it's not something you do. It's something we're going to get into. What is faith then? If this is the one condition where God's wrath abides on you and he promises, I will judge you and put you in hell when you die if you don't have faith in my son, then we need to know this. What does it mean to have faith? A lot of people think it's this ethereal, like, I just feel good. I just have faith in it. Um, it's not what the Bible teaches. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Faith is confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. I'm confident the sun will rise tomorrow. Right? I'm, I'm not confident in the political system. Use some context clues here. What are we saying? Faith is trust. To be confident in something is to trust it. I have faith the sun will come up tomorrow. I have no faith in either political candidate. I've got faith in you, bro. Like, you hear that kind of stuff, right? Like, I'm going to go for it, man. i got faith in you, dude. What does that mean? I'm confident that you can accomplish what you said that you can accomplish. Right? That's what that means. That's what faith means. Faith is trust. I have faith in Jesus. I hope. Which hope doesn't mean, oh, I hope, like I'm grasping at straws, but whenever the Bible uses the word hope, it means my confidence is grounded in it, and I know it's sure. My hope is that the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus will save me from the judgment of Jesus for my sin. Saving faith is trusting that Jesus Christ in his work alone apart from works, will save you from the penalty for your sin, which is eternity in hell. That's what faith is. To have faith in Jesus means that we stop trusting in our own goodness to save us. We, we begin to cling to Christ's goodness in our place. He was perfect. I am not. I must cling to His righteousness. Why do you think we sing songs like, My hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Why do you think we say that? Why do you think we sing, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling? What are we saying with that? It's not my goodness. It's the righteousness of Christ that will save. It, I bring nothing to the table on this. I'm trusting Him. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? It means if we're playing poker, I'm pushing my chips in to the middle of the table. I am all in on the work of Jesus. I have nothing left. I'm not holding anything back in reserve. I have complete and utter trust and dependence on him to save me by what he did. We trust in God's promise 
His scriptures say, his word is true, and he says faith alone in Christ alone saves. Look at it this way. Well, what, is it, what does it look like to have faith? Imagine you're standing before the judgment throne of God. He says, you've sinned. You're guilty of sin. And the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell. You're convicted. There is no arguing because the Bible says every mouth is stopped. He says, how do you plea? What faith means is that we plead Christ's life in our place. He was perfect. I am guilty. But you said that his life would save me if I trusted it, and I trusted it. I'm pleading mercy not on my behalf because I have nothing to bring. But he was abundantly righteous. He was perfect for me. I don't have any good works to bring you, God, but he does. And you said that you would accredit his righteousness to me if I would trust him. That's what it means to have faith. Faith means not only that, but I feel like I must give some disclaimers. Chew on this if you're a Christian. We don't just trust in Christ for our salvation, but we trust him for everything. Right? I trust that his way is better than mine, always. Right? No matter what I feel like I want to do in a certain situation or what I would like to do with my life, his will is better than mine. I trust him. He knows what he's doing. Because if we trust him for the big thing, then we should trust him for the lesser things because this life is much smaller than eternity. But it's faith. Faith is the means of us receiving right standing with God. So this doctrine, salvation by faith alone, just sounds right. This doctrine of salvation by faith alone is something that all Christians hold to dearly. And I would argue this, not just dearly, we violently hold this. And I'm not telling anyone to go out and beat anyone that disagrees with you about this. We violently hold on to this with everything that we have. Right? We, notice this. (laughs) Sorry, I was getting ahead of myself. I get pumped up for this kind of stuff. Notice in verse 2 that we read earlier, it says, Paul and Barnabas debated and argued vehemently. With these false teachers, right? I said we hold to this violently. They are impassioned. They are heatedly arguing with these false teachers about this doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Dispute over this doctrine. That there was even a small amount of disagreement within the church. It, it, it caused the first ever church council, right? The first and most important church council ever, I might add, right? Why was it so important? Why did they say, okay, there's, a, there's, there's some division here. We must get this nailed down right now. Why is that? Because salvation is on the line with this doctrine. The gospel itself is at stake because the question that we're trying to answer is, what must a person do to be saved? Paul and Barnabas understood that that was what was at stake here, salvation. If you try to mix your goodness with your faith, you will go to hell. They understood that. So here's the thing. So here's what we've seen historically from the church. We will disfellowship with people over this. We will cut ties to people who profess to be Christians 
who don't hold to this or who adamantly reject this. And I don't mean that they're confused and they need taught because they've had bad pastors. I mean people who adamantly reject this teaching. We disfellowship with them. We will leave churches over this. Right? We will split churches over this. Read about the Reformation. That is why they split. We will split churches over this. We will fight over this. Not physically, but we will fight over this. But the thing is, this isn't out of a spirit of hatred. We hold on to this doctrine violently out of love for Christ and his gospel. Paul actually words it strong, way, way stronger than me in the Greek here in Galatians 1, 6-9. He says, I am shocked. He's writing to the Galatians who had accepted this false teaching. I am shocked that you were turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse, that means let them be damned, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. This is serious. People will go to hell if they trust in anything but the person and work of Jesus. Because anything else is a false gospel that has no power to save. But not only for those reasons do we fight. We fight for liberty. Paul says, it's for freedom you've been made free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. We fight for liberty. We fight for this because legalism is slavery. And what I mean by that is if we think our salvation is dependent upon our ability to obey God, then we will spiral into a pit of fear and uncertainty because our obedience will never be good enough. We'll always be asking the question, does God still have wrath for me because I did not obey Him as best as He said I should? Because God demands perfection. We'll never have any certainty about our salvation. We'll always live in fear of God. I lived in that pit. For 17 years before becoming an atheist, I lived in that pit. And God in His sovereign mercy called me back. But I remember always thinking that God did not accept me because I failed His requirements. Or there's this one, and I, I deal with this today. I think every Christian does. I was... I was more accepted yesterday than today. Why? Because I was more obedient yesterday than I was today. I know that I'm not the only one who feels that way sometimes. Talk about people being overwhelmed in their sin and feeling like that there is no forgiveness and they have no peace in Christ. It's because they believe that lie that I was more accepted by God on the day that I was obedient than on the day that I disobeyed. And that is all a lie from Satan. That is false. Christ's atonement was perfect. So we can say with confidence, I am no more accepted by God on days that I do well in obedience than on the day that I first repented and believed the gospel. We can say that with confidence and why? Because we are saved by trusting Christ's perfect work and not our own. Romans 3, 27, 28 says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Christ's work was perfect for me. If you have faith in Christ, if your trust is in Him, it was perfect for you. 
The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, frees us. It's freedom. We will not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I will die before I do that again. Christ has set us free. He gives us liberty. He has set us free from the condemnation that comes from trying to obey God for our salvation. And he did that by paying our debt in full on the cross. So now we can walk in this life with peace, knowing that God accepts us by the work of Christ, that even on our worst days of disobedience, we always run back to the cross and find mercy, because there Christ sufficiently atoned for us. Our strivings have ceased. Our work is done. We are done with trying to save ourselves by our goodness And when we're done with trying to mix our goodness with faith for salvation, we can rest in Christ. I want us all to experience the joy of knowing that we are accepted by God in Christ and on no other grounds. It's the only time in my life I ever found peace with God was when I came to understand that. And I want that for all of you because that's what the Bible teaches. But this heresy has kept us blind to this for so long that even after being Christians for a while, our own flesh and all this false teaching that we hear makes us go back to slavery. I want us to be free because Christ wants us to be free. So what I want you to do, whenever you begin to despair about your sin, I want you to run back to these truths after you fail. And then repent Turn from your sin and continue living in liberty and in grace. Because doing anything else is going to lead you to despair. It's going to lead you to fear. But John tells us perfect love casts out fear. The perfect love of Christ casts out fear. Well, Peter ends his speech in verse 11 with something that I, I want us all to be able to hide in. I want us to all be able to run to this on a daily basis. I want this to be what we rest in. When I'm getting ready to read you, this is our battle cry against legalism. This is our one hope. It's this. We Christians, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. This is our war cry. This is what we say when we close our eyes in death. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is God's word. This is the only gospel that saves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. God, thank you for freedom from slavery. Father, I pray if if there are any unbelievers here that you would begin to loosen their bonds. Holy Spirit, please bring someone to faith. If there's someone here that doesn't know you, turn their dead heart alive. Let them see the beauty of the gospel. Father, for the believers that are here, God, remind us that everything that we have is a grace that we can't merit anything because we are sinners. We are sinners who have been justified in your sight through the blood of Christ, but we are still sinners nonetheless, and we can't merit anything. And yet you freely give it to us. Let us rest in those truths. 
I pray that we would be repentant for our sin and despise our sin and live in obedience to you. But at the end of the day, rest in Christ. You've set us free for freedom. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.